All right. Uh, welcome, friends and comrades, to a new podcast of Class Unity. This is Daniel T. with Julie Stout and Adam Theron Lee Wrench, who is an uh, incredible author of a new book that we're here to discuss, somewhat new, uh, came out actually in the last few years, um, uh, called No Home for You Here, a memoir on uh, class and culture. And uh, this, this is a very moving book. This, uh, this memoir is, um, I think, quite unlike any memoir that I've read in its um, brutal honesty and in its revealing of the experiences of working class life in America in ways which, uh, frankly, don't get airtime in our culture, in our discourse, um, much at all. And so the experience of reading it, Adam, was, um, was very powerful and quite, uh, quite resonated with me. And um, I know Julie got a lot out of the book as well. So we wanted to chat with you about it. Um, our first question, Adam, is a basic one, which is how did the book come about? And um, yeah, so how did this come about? How did you end up writing this book? Yeah, so I, well, first off, thank you for your, for your kind words. Um, the book came out in 2020, and it's weird because it came out in March of 2020, April, and I don't know if you guys remember what was happening at that time, but it was a very it was a very strange time to have published a book because on the one hand, you're sort of excited for this thing that you spent a lot of time on. You're sort of nervous about it because there's, uh, there's something very scary about publishing something, especially something about your own life, which is something I never thought I would do, or I thought I would do, but in a different way, which I'll get to in a second. Um, and then right when it happens, like COVID hits and suddenly it's like, do I promote this? Like, is that, does that, does that even make sense to try to like <laughs> go on and like try to be like, Hey, I know everyone's dying, but like, I wrote this book, you guys should read it. Um, so that was a, that was a strange, that was a strange situation. So, but yeah, so I, you know, I had been working. So my background is like, I, you know, I did the, the BFA in photography which I talk about in the book and I did the MFA. And, and for a long time, you know, I, I, I lived in New York City for a couple of years and I was really trying to be a part of the sort of literary scene. Um, and uh, I was really trying to write a certain kind of memoir, um, which in, in a lot of ways I see this memoir as being kind of a, a reaction to, which is, um, you know, the, the memoir market is, is very, um, at that time especially, it was very big. And, and it still is. Um, and there's a certain kind of narrative that I think is very popular among memoirs and that I felt very conflicted about, which is sort of, um, here's all my pain, here's all my suffering. Doesn't it make you feel bad or doesn't it make you feel sad? Um, and that's kind of, that's kind of where, where it is, where it ends. And so, you know, I had tried to write that book and I have a version of that book on my computer somewhere that was sort of you know, bits and pieces of it found their way into this book. But I sort of put it on hold for a while because I didn't have success and I got kind of disillusioned with the whole scene. So I ended up doing my PhD um, and, and in English. And so I spent a long time and I wasn't really writing at all. Um, I was mostly just doing academic work. And I published this piece. It was the first time I'd published an essay in, in quite a while. I'd published a few things for The Guardian and uh, and so I, I decided to write this piece in reaction to the 2016 election cycle. And this was the white working class, you know, 
Trump, Sanders, deplorables, that whole thing. And I was living in Chicago at the time. I was in Chicago for about eight years. And uh, I remember reading, you know, all of the news coverage and kind of seeing the ways that people were talking about like rural America and, and, you know, they do these cutaway shots, you know, to um, Trump rallies or, or whatever. And it was always these sort of characteristically sort of um, ugly people. They're always like, you know, these sort of like, look at how gross and disgusting these people are. Right. And I remember just thinking like, I don't know. I mean, those are just like people I grew up with. They look like people I know. They look like members of my my family, frankly. And so um, I so I wrote this piece called um, "White Rural and Poor" on the politics of non-identity, and um, and I sent it to uh, Brooklyn Rail Paul Maddock Jr. Is there? He's the editor of the Field Note section, and um, we worked on it for a little bit. He really liked it, and he published it. And then about a month later, he uh, emailed me and was like, "Hey, there's this book called White Trash by Nancy Eisenberg. I don't know if you guys have read that. 400 year uh, history of." The 400-year untold history of class in America. And so he asked me to write a review of it. So I wrote a review of that. Um, it was called What We Talk About When We Talk About Class. And, you know, I, I was very um, critical of the book, but also I, I think it's a good book. It's a good history. But I thought that the way she talked about class was a little confusing and not quite uh, correct in some ways. And so um, from there, you know, Paul and I sort of developed a really good um relationship and I published some more essays and then he was like hey I'm, I'm editing this book series for reaction books I want you to write something for me and so I, I wrote up the proposal and the initial draft of the book um, so this was like in 2017 probably and uh, the initial proposal for the book was very little memoir it was primarily like an academic book and it was kind of a cultural history of the last say, 40 years, kind of dealing with, you know, the rise of financialization, identity politics, academic, um, you know, the academic discourse, um, and a lot of the um, sort of academic scholarship on the white working class of that time. And that was accepted, and and it was all, you know, it was exciting. And I, and I, I spent a year writing the first draft, I think, and this was in 20... 2018 probably and uh i uh <laughs> i sent it to them and they were like something's missing and i and i kind of agree it felt like a really thin history it wasn't really working and so you know i had i had written some about my life in in, in those essays and so i started including more of like my story and then it, it sort of became apparent that you know just sort of by virtue of when i was born and by virtue of like when my father was born there were really interesting historical markers for these broad shifts in like the the economy and the political structure of of the United States that in some ways felt like a really easy way to hang all of my criticism on and like my reflections on not only um, identity and and culture but also like you know what it means to write about um, uh, someone else's pain and suffering, which is something I think a lot about in the book. So I ended up um, including more of that and, and they, you know, they really liked it. Um, and so that was, that's sort of like the, the rough timeline um, of, of how it all kind of came about. It was a very long process that I never thought, I never thought I'd write a book like this, but it sort of um, demanded itself to me in some ways. I sort of felt like I had to kind of do that.
Yeah, thanks for that, Adam. I mean, it, it's um, it certainly doesn't read like an academic book at all. Um, it's pretty remarkable the way that you weave in these experiences of kind of macro structural political economic changes and how they infuse your life growing up um, in, in the place that you did. And I wanted to, to invite you to um, give us a little bit of a snapshot maybe, and then I'll, we'll turn it over to Julie, um, who I know is eager to jump in on this as well. Um, give us a snapshot of, um, of, uh, of your, of your childhood, like kind of, um, I mean, it's, I think there is a kind of liberal way of thinking about pain and suffering of the working class that can be quite problematic, but this, mm -hmm. this is something that you, and we're going to talk about that later, but this is something that you um, approach. I would, I would say from a more Marxist point of view and you circumvent a lot of the kind of sympathy for the poors uh, that liberals do. And you also circumvent this kind of other dimension that liberals do, which is to, um, conceive of the of poor people as as deplorable or has somehow as losers or somehow as failed or somehow as out of the sphere of representation that's eligible to be given services etc um but why don't we why don't you give the listeners maybe a little bit of a snapshot about your life um just so we're kind of on the same page if that if that's okay yeah that's totally fine um so i grew up in northwest ohio um, a little town called Finley, Ohio. Um, it is where most people know Finley because that is um, where Ben Roethlisberger is from, <laughs> uh, the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, well, now retired quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, he was a year or two ahead of me in high school, I think. And, um, you know, I grew up, so I was born in, in the 80s. And at that time, you know, my parents were struggling a lot. We lived in a mobile home. Um, and then we we moved to that mobile home uh, out into the out into the country. My father uh, had done one year of college and dropped out to kind of satisfy some romantic ideas of that he was going to be like a rock star or a writer or something. You know, he was a a, a, a true product of like the late seventies um, that kind of culture. And he you know he had read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and he thought that he was going to like be this kind of figure you know and he idolized that and in a lot of ways i feel like he lived his life in that in that sort of way he suffered from a lot of mental illness and alcohol problems but at that time he just worked at a factory um he was it was a sundor factory they made the plastic bottles for sunny delight and so we used to get cases of sunny delight because like all of the the ones that had errors they would just give them to the workers sunny d yeah apparently there's a sunny d like mixer now i saw it at the store the other day when i was going to get my beer and i was like oh my god i haven't had sunny d in a long time i used to love it as a kid and why wouldn't you it's like 100 percent sugar and it's like it used to like burn your lips i always had chapped lips as a kid and you'd like take a sip and it was so painful um and my mom so my mom worked odd jobs at that time she was a seamstress she was uh she did mary Kay. um like a lot of working women she got caught up into some of those like weird mlm schemes that still to this day are, are kind of everywhere. Um, and then she got her realtor's license because I think that in the eighties, especially in, you know, in, in the nineties, like, you know, sorry, I was a truck. I'm in this like weird um, three quarters room. That's like not very well insulated. So if cars go by, you might hear them. Um, so, but yeah, so she, she became a, a, a realtor. Um, Cause I think she, 
you know, she was good. She was like good at sales. She's good at talking to people. She's very gregarious. And, um, you know, and I think that realty as a profession is, is there's something glamorous about it. Um, even though I think the reality of it for a lot of realtors is actually pretty awful. Um, and it was for her for a while. I mean, she became pretty successful later on and we can talk about that, her kind of weird role in like the housing bubble. (laughs) Um, but you know, at that time we were just kind of, we, we were just sort of working, working people. Uh, and my sister is four years older than me. She's technically my half sister, but, um, I don't really think of her as my half sister. Um, we have different fathers. So my, my mom was a single mom when she met my dad. And, um, you know, over the next, you know, 10 years or so, we sort of slowly kind of crept up the, you know, the socioeconomic ladder in some, in some weird way. Like my father went back to school when I was maybe 10 and he got his, he got his degree. And, uh, we moved to, you know, a, a somewhat, we moved to a house, which was an upgrade from the, from the mobile home. And then from, from the, from there, we moved to like a, a nice house, you know, at least at that time, I thought it was nice. Now it just is sort of a house, but it had two floors. So I thought that was like really exciting. And um, my parents split up around that time. And then, you know, my father just lived in shitty apartments for the rest of his life. And um, my mom kind of kept that kept that house. And so it was weird. I entered this like, you know, it, it, when I entered high school, I sort of entered this weird um phase where I was like hanging out on weekends with my dad and shitty little one bedroom apartments. And then I go home to my mom in this sort of nice middle-class home. Um, and it was always, it was sort of weird moving between those two worlds because I never really felt like never quite knew how to like navigate, navigate those experiences. Um, and I was, I was sort of an angry kid. I, I got into a lot of trouble, um, when I was in middle school. Um, but, but yeah, you know, I ended up, I, I excelled academically for whatever reason. Um, and so I, I thought I was going to be an art teacher. Um, and I, I ended up going to school to be an art teacher, a public high school art teacher. But halfway through, I was like, I just want to make art. You know, it's like the Bush era, like kind of 2000s, you know, like, and I had this sort of romantic idea, I think no doubt inspired probably by my father and my father's own ideas about like, you know, being an intellectual or something that, I was going to do something that quote unquote mattered or do something that was meaningful, which at that time seemed like I wanted to make art. Um, and I have lots of thoughts about, about all of that. Um, but you know, the book, you know, like, like I talk about in the book is like, you know, there's, it's really a reflection on my way of rationalizing like, okay, here I was as a little kid, you know, kind of instinctually understanding that we were poor, even though I didn't quite really you know, when you're like six or seven, you don't really like, I mean, you know it, but you don't really have that kind of language, the sort of complex language to talk about it. You just know that you're a little different, that there's like something about you that seems off, that other people have nice things. And so, you know, I I really tried in a lot of different ways to kind of rationalize those, that feeling of like, uh, I don't know, alienation, I guess, is the best way to describe it. So like in middle school, you know, it was like, I'm going to be a freak. So I I like, I did, I, I acted out and I wore like, I dyed my hair and I like painted my fingernails. And I did all this like weird stuff and I hung out with like really bad kids, you know, who were getting into a lot of trouble and smoking pot and 
doing all of those kinds of things. And it seemed to make intuitive sense to me to do those because it was sort of a rejection of, 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 uh, of authority, you know, like sort of like, look, if you're, if you're going to think of me this way, then, you know, screw you. I'm going to, I'll be that way. You know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, and then I think that in, in a certain sense, academia became the other way, you know, later on in life, it was sort of like, okay, I'm not poor or I'm not uh, wealthy. I don't, I don't have money and I don't come from a, a wealthy family and I don't have those kinds of things. But what I can do is like become really smart and cultured and intellectual and have like social capital, which, you know, seemed to be, you know, a way of navigating those weird spaces, which you may, you know, you always hope that like, okay, maybe with enough social capital, you can kind of spin it into something spin it into a good job. Um, or spend, you know, with the knowledge economy. I mean, that's kind of the narrative that we're often being told. Um, and of course, the reality is not the case for a lot of people. So, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to know about my my childhood? <laughs> yes, actually, um, I related to the book a lot because I'm a white working class person whose parents worked in a factory. Um, and my mother, more than anything, aspired for me to become cultured, you mm. know, and the expectation was that I would go to college. And, you know, my mother would always say, you're not going to have to work as hard as I did. Um, you know, you're not going to have these problems. You're not going to worry about your job going to Mexico. And here I am um, <laughs> with a college degree and I'm food insecure. I had to yeah. go to the food pantry last week because the cupboard was bare. And I was reflecting on the book and I was noticing, it's kind of obvious that you really don't talk a lot, except for in the very beginning, you talk about a potluck, but you don't talk about what the grocery situation was like at home. And then you don't talk about when you move to New York and there are no supermarkets anymore, how that affected how you ate. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing a little bit about like how you ate growing up and how that changed when you got different cultural attitudes about what was appropriate food to eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> I ate uh, just garbage growing up. Like, I mean, you know, we would have a family meal once a week or twice a week or however, however, you know, whenever my parents could make the schedule work, we had the family dinner. It was like sort of a tradition that my mother's family had. You know, my mother came from both my parents came. Well, my mother came from an extremely impoverished situation. Her mother was a sort of really brutal alcoholic. She died when she was 14. So she was basically kind of, she became a, a mom to her two younger sisters at 14 and they had a lot of food insecurity and they had no money. And so they had to sort of invent all kinds of weird food to eat. And she's always telling me, she still tells about tells me about to this day. My father is from a kind of traditional industrial working class family. His, his father worked at Cooper tire, which is where his brother worked, which is where his son works now. And you know, at that time in the 1960s, you know, my grandpa had a high school education and he made enough to support a family of, you know, four, four kids, a wife and four kids. You know, my, my grandma was just a stay at home grandma. And, you know, like it was, they, they, they kind of made it. Um, and so, but when we were growing up, you know, 
both my parents worked a lot. My dad worked, you know, second shift, sometimes third shift. And, you know, my mom was always running around trying to sell a house, you know, because with, with realty, it's just, it's like hustle culture. You can never really, you never really have it. She never had a day off ever. She never had, because it was like, if she took a day off, it was like, well, if I take this day off, do I lose a sale? Right. And so in between all of those meals or in between, you know, all of those, uh, kind of, um, shifts of work that they were, that they were doing, we would have a family meal, which, you know, was, you know, standard kind of Midwestern culture food, I guess. Um, you know, my mom made, um, a lot of, uh, chicken pot pie and that was like my favorite dish growing up. Um, but there were a lot of times when we kind of were left to fend for ourselves. Um, and so I ate a lot of bologna as a kid, bologna sandwiches with ketchup. That was like my favorite sandwich when I was a little kid. I loved it. I thought, I thought, I thought it was really good. I would eat cheese sandwiches. Um, I loved ketchup, um, which I always found to be Donald Trump's most relatable quality that he eats steak with ketchup. I always thought, you know, like that's kind of like good for him, I guess. Um, but I, I, yeah, I ate a lot of bologna with ketchup. I ate a lot of junk food um, because it was just sort of there and it was cheap and it was easy to eat. Um, I didn't have to prepare anything. I never knew how to cook at all. I never learned how to cook. My parents never like, my mother never like taught us how to cook, I guess. Like she would cook for us occasionally, but she never sort of, I don't know if she just didn't have the time or if she just didn't feel like it was necessary, but she never really sort of was like, here, you're going to learn how to make food. Um, I mean, we would help out sometimes, but it was never like a, you know, my wife, for instance, when she was growing up, like her, they had designated days where like the, she and her sisters would have to cook the, have to cook the meal, you know? That was not really part of my my childhood experience. Um, and so then, you know, like growing up, gro you know, leaving Ohio, going to uh, New York City. Um, I remember the first time I had hummus and it was sort of like it, it was sort of like, uh, they were like you don't know what hummus is. You know what I mean? And I was just like. Like, why, why would I know what hummus is? Like, nobody ate hummus. Like, nobody ever ate hummus, like, when I was growing up. And I love hummus now. It's, like, one of my favorite things. It's, like, I just eat bread and hummus, like, all day. Because <laughs> it's cheap and easy and I don't have to cook anything, you know. I'm, I'm much like my father. My father never cooked. I don't think my father ate a vegetable, like, his entire life. He just, like, ate peanuts and chicken wings and, like, pizza and drank a lot of beer. Um, And so I, I sort of take after my father in that way. I'm, I'm very instinctually somewhat of averse to cooking because I'm just like, eh, I can just like shove some shit in my face. And so I, I think that I've, I've internalized a lot of those kinds of habits that are very hard to break. I still love fast food and I still eat a lot of junk food. And so I've always felt really out of place in like fancy um, sort of foodie culture. I never quite know. I never quite understood it, I guess. And I'm sure there's like a point to it. I'm sure that like really good food is, I guess, really good. Um, but to me, I just, I just, I don't, I don't get it. And it's always been kind of, um, a struggle for me to sort of admit to myself and to other people what I really like to eat, which is like, like, I'd probably still be eating bologna sandwiches. You know what I mean? Like I, I, uh, I, 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 maybe a better example of this is, so I dated a woman, um, who was very cultured and she was an extremely good cook. And it was, I mean, it was like agonizing for me to try to like, I always felt so inadequate, you know, like 
because she's cooking these amazing meals and it was so cool, you know? And I just thought like deep down in my heart, I'm like, can I just like go get McDonald's? You know what I mean? Like, can I just like, I just, that's what I want to eat. I mean, and it was good food. Don't get me wrong. It tasted good. And she was really, you know, it was, and it was exciting to be introduced to all kinds of new things, but there was always this sort of slight like stank, like, Oh, that's what you like to eat. You know what I mean? And I don't know, like people like what they like, you know, whatever. But as far as food goes, I just, the way we moralize about food is so strange. Um, and I don't know. People should just eat whatever they want. <laughs> um, Adam, one of the things I really found um, interesting and, and relatable in your book is your political consciousness and the kind of evolution and changes in your political outlook and worldview. Hmm. And one of my observations, and maybe you agree or maybe you disagree, um, is that it seems that the changes in your framework of thinking about politics in the world went from a kind of standard left liberalism uh, in which, you know, I don't want to give it a name. We don't need to call it like anything, but it's just we, we know we know what that what that looks like. And um, yet you change you 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 abandon that sort of um general orientation because you slowly started to realize through frankly kind of more intimate interpersonal relationships with people from a different class background than yourself as well as being kind of inculcated into these bougie institutions on your path within academia that the formulation of that worldview was actually built and formed off of a kind of hostility to your working class roots mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk about that experience because that is interesting, right? It's not so much that these big external events like 2008 economic crash or the war in Iraq necessarily alerted your class consciousness. Maybe they did to some extent, but I noticed that it was in this other domain of personal, and maybe that's actually the value of a memoir apropos class consciousness and the weird the weird fact of class consciousness mm -hmm. that it maybe does take place in these more personal domains. Um, I, I could give some examples, for example, the experience you had as a tutor in New York, um, oh, yeah. which maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about that experience. That was raw. And, you know, speaking personally, um, you know, my parents had no books in the household and, you know, my interest in, in the world of ideas and, academia, which I share with you, was kind of a, a rare outlaw thing. It was unexpected for me to have that. I was working construction and there was no reason for me to do that. It's just something that I accidentally found, right? right. And, and I kind of made by, a mer by several miracles, which I won't get into, I made a way out of working construction. Um, but for me too, you know, getting introduced to those worlds of education in some cases elite education where i definitely didn't feel i uh, was welcome there man that was that was hardcore in terms of people's lived experiences their expectations day to day of just even how they see reality social reality mm -hmm. so different than mine and i didn't it just hit me and i'm just wondering if you could talk about that yeah for sure i mean so i you know i'd never so in the book um i talk about getting accepted to Sarah Lawrence College 
for my MFA in creative writing. And so this was such a strange decision that I made and a kind of long shot that I even got accepted because I didn't do creative writing at all in undergrad. I did art and philosophy. And at that time, I wasn't really thinking about graduate school. You know, my, my stepmother was dying of cancer. My father was kind of like going insane. I was taking care of him a lot. I was like, like giving him money so that he could keep drinking, um, which is, you know, when you're 20 years old, like, I don't know what else to do. You know, like I would go hang out with him and he would just kind of look at me like he barely recognized me. And then my father died when I was a, during my last year of, of college. And right when he died, it was weird. It was like he died. And then like, you know, a short time later, I got this acceptance letter because I had just on a on a whim applied to um, Sarah Lawrence to do creative writing. I think in part because my father was working on a memoir when he died. You know, he had this idea that he was going to write this great memoir about like his the death of his wife, about like his alcoholism, about all of these kinds of things at that time, which, you know, again, at that time, this is like, this is the era of like James Frey, you know, if you remember that crazy uh, fake memoir that turned out to be like totally fake and he went on Oprah and everything. And I think my dad was, you know, in some sense, trying to tap into that uh, kind of that, that stream of, of, of culture, probably just to make a name for himself, to, to, to make some money, to whatever, to kickstart his, his literary career. He had ambitions to write other kinds of novels. He was a big horror fan. I'm sure he, you know, would have liked to have written some horror novels or something. And, um, and I, so I think that my decision to apply was probably unconsciously, maybe a weird um, sort of form of like devotion to him or dedication to him. Like here's my father, who's this like totally broken man. Um, and he wants to be a writer and he's, you know, not having success and maybe I can do it, you know, for him and I can, or whatever, you know? And so I got accepted and it was this crazy thing where, you know, here you are living in Northwest Ohio. I, I never, I mean, I don't, I barely even left Ohio at all. Like I'd never tried, I'd never left the country. I'd never like gone to, I'd never been to New York city. I'd never been to Chicago. I'd never been anywhere. You know, I think the largest, you know, the only city I'd really been to at that point in time in my life was, was Columbus, Ohio. Um, and so suddenly you have this letter that's saying, Hey, you can come and you can study at like this prestigious elite institution where like the children of celebrities go and like, it's really idyllic, gorgeous. Um, and so like what 22 year old kid, you know, I mean, I guess I should say, I shouldn't say that because there are a lot of kids I know now who are like, I'm not going to school. That's just too expensive, you know? But at that time, you know, 2007, it seemed like such an obvious thing. And it was like, Oh wow, man, I made it. This is so cool. I'm going to go. So I, I went, you know, and you know, getting there was so strange because on the one hand, you're so, I'm like walking around like in a daze by just like how beautiful and nice everything is. And it's like you're a character in some weird movie and you're surrounded by all these, you know, really, really, really privileged kids. I mean, Sarah Lawrence has a few, you know, people who, who, who kind of get scholarships and who make it, but it is like overwhelmingly, you know, the children of like, like elite professionals, basically. And so I, you know, I started kind of trying to navigate this like weird, this really, really, really weird world, 
Um, and I wanted to be like them. I wanted to impress them. Um, and, you know, I, I remember I got a job. And this is what you're talking about. I got a job as a tutor. So one of my teachers, like, you know, her friend at like the ecological culture school or whatever it is in like uh, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, she was like, well, her son needs an English tutor to like read. He's like, was like reading Oscar Wilde or whatever. Huck Finn, you know. So can you tutor him and help him because he's got to study for his exams? And I was like, sure, you know. And so I met with him once, the first time I met with him in the library. And he was this kind of very characteristically sort of kind of insolent, like quiet kid with like, you know, shaggy, you know, he looked like a lacrosse player. I think he was a lacrosse player. He had a Yale shirt on. I think it was probably a legacy admission, which are all the rage now. But um which is funny in retrospect. I'm like, did he really ever like, was he ever really at risk of not getting into one of these schools? Like, come on. Like, I think at this point it was just like, they just need to say that their kid is doing well. You know what I mean? So after the class, you know, she hands me a check for 135 bucks or after the hour, after the one hour session. And I'm like, Oh, is this for like all of the sessions I'll be giving him? And she's like, no, that's just for this one. So it's like $135 an hour, which at that time was a lot of money. I mean, it still is a, a lot of money. And I was like, are you serious? Like, like you're spending $135 an hour to get so your, your kid can get into Yale. It's just, it's crazy. Right. And to her, it was nothing. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know what her father did. I remember trying to ask him once, I was like, what do your parents do? And he was like, I think my dad like does something in stocks. And I was like, Oh, and I was like, what's your mom doing? He goes, nothing. She's just like, she's just like in all these groups. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, I don't even think he knew. I don't think they, they probably didn't even tell him. You know what I mean? Like, he's he's just totally oblivious. And I mean, he was a nice kid. I don't want to like, I don't want to like, you know. But it was it was a very strange, bewildering experience with like, wow, these people have, these people aren't just, because like Ohio wealthy, especially like in Finley, like I knew some people who were like, quote unquote, rich. We would always talk about, oh yeah, they're rich. But like, like at that time, like being rich was like, Oh, you make a hundred thousand dollars a year, not like, oh, you make uh millions of dollars a year and like your house is, you know, like this gilded estate or whatever. Like like Finley Rich is like those weird McMansions that are awful and still like cost three hundred thousand dollars or whatever, you know what I mean? So it was it was a a a a a, a big sort of whiplash experience being introduced to this sort of world. Um, and, you know, I really internalized a lot of it, I think, because I, I thought that that was what I had to do. I just thought like, I'm going to make it. I want to be, I want to be a cultured person. And because I wanted to be a cultured person, because I thought that they would respect someone who was intelligent and clever, you know, you begin to sort of look down upon people you perceive as less intelligent or less clever, you know, those, you know, stupid rural people or whatever, you know, and, and, and for me, it was like kind of thinking back, I think like, I'm no longer like one of those people. I'm no longer just some dumb nobody, you know, I'm a, I'm a smart somebody. And it's, it's crazy to think about because it's just, it's such a cruel, um, and, um, arrogant way of of thinking about the world um but for me you know and this was also you know obama i mean that was like the whole like i was basically an obama liberal i remember in 2008 i was at sarah lawrence when he got elected it was like a huge party everyone was so excited you know 
And I was excited because at the at the time that was sort of like the horizon of politics, you know, that was like what we had. It was like, you know, who were who were the truly kind of left candidates or the truly kind of anti-establishment candidates before that was like Dennis Kucinich, who was like kind of a weirdo and like Ralph Nader, you know, and, and who very quickly was, you know, was, was round, you know, quickly mocked. Um, so there wasn't really like the presence of anything like a, a left or even a kind of democratic socialism or a kind of working kind of consciousness. Um, and so, you know, I really sort of lived that for a little while, you know, for a few years at least, you know, I lived in Brooklyn. I worked for a poet. Um, I was hanging out with, you know, I was working at the Strand in New York City. I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Strand. Really cool bookstore. Um, it's unionized, actually. Um, at least it was when I was there. And um, and so I, I would say that things began to change for me. Like I moved back in 2002. 2011, when um, I didn't get a job, or I got fired from my bookstore job in Brooklyn. He fired me in an email, which was very funny. Uh, he's like, hey, just so you know, you're not on the schedule anymore. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess, I'm, guess I don't have a job anymore. And I was working, you know, the, the, the poet who I, I was like his personal assistant, which was like also a very surreal job. It was like I was like just babysitting his little daughter and like sometimes organizing his emails of which he got like thousands all the time. And um, so he was like, well, basically, you know, I don't need you. I don't need your help anymore. So I didn't really have anything left for me. So I moved back to Ohio. And, you know, at the time, my best friend um, was sick with cystic fibrosis and he needed a double lung transplant. And uh, so I was home. I was living with my mom. I, I didn't really have a job. I had nothing. I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of just like awash in like uh, contingency, you know, and uh, I ended up just enrolling in another grad school program because I needed to continue deferring my student loans because they were like, hey, your student loans, you got to start paying them back. And I was like, well, not if I stay in school. I thought I'd found like the greatest life hack ever. Like if I just keep staying in school until I'm like 80, I can continue to defer them. And like, what are they going to do? You know? Um, and so that's what I, that's what I did. And then, you know, I, I don't know, I, I guess sometime around then I started to think differently because I was home because I was around, I was around it more, you know? Um, and, you know, my other good friend, uh, Kevin, was, you know, struggling with heroin addiction. Um, and I think that I just began to sort of my whole kind of thinking shifted. I mean, it wasn't like overnight. It was kind of a gradual thing. But, you know, I think it was a combination of being around, being back around, you know, the people that I'd grown up with and also becoming increasingly disillusioned with academia, you know. I just thought like, man, like I just, I, I don't know, like this, this whole way of thinking about uh, working people and, and what it means, you know, to, to succeed or, 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 or like what, what we value in, in, in those respects, the whole technocratic worldview. Um, I just thought, man, this is, this is insane. You know, it's totally, it's totally insane. And from there, it's just been kind of slowly. But, you know, academia is like a cult. You can't really quit. You know, like once you're in it, like you try to quit and it's just like they keep calling you back, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is amazing. I mean, I feel that this this memoir, this work you've done is so 
such an important snapshot of kind of the millennial generation of a generational testament that older people would benefit from reading and obviously people of our of our generation would also benefit from reading insofar as you know a lot of folks look at things like the student loan debt crisis today and they think well why did these kids um, make this risk mm -hmm. well well you know speaking from firsthand experience and from your memoir uh, it's because we grew up with some of the the budding promises of the 1990s and even though we were working class, we had this naive idea of some vestige of what we used to call, I don't know, American dream or something like that. And so, yeah, I agree. You wanted to kind of escape the system mm -hmm. early on. I think it's also fair. I don't know if you agree that we jumped into these opportunities because um, and we didn't see how they would become such an intense post 2008. Mm -hmm. would how they would determine and shape our, our horizon of possibility. We had a naivete and I felt that your book spoke to that struggle. Yes. But not being able to articulate the struggle of your childhood, you know, language for it. It was rough kind of vague antagonism, but also there was a feeling of a kind of budding possibility. So yeah, I'm going to do the college yeah. because that's my only way out. I don't see myself as working class person, but I do, but I do want to get out. I do mm -hmm. want to escape, right? I do want to escape these conditions. And so I'm going to do the loans because that's my only way to do it. That all changes after 2008. Now kids are facing what I would call like a hunger games sort of scenario. Oh, yeah. in which if you're working class now, boy, you know, that risk is, is real. And you, you've already seen these older millennials, um, enchained to this debt, you don't want to be enchained. Mm -hmm. They don't have the same optimism that we had, right? As working yeah. class young people, can you speak to that? Yeah, so that's that's a great point, and it's something I think a lot about because you know when I when I got accepted to Sarah Lawrence College, I mean, number one, even going to undergrad, like you know, so much of where we go to school, our decision to go to school. And this is something I've been doing a lot of like research on because it's something I want to write about. You know, for a long time, we were told that education is like the single greatest sort of um, factor for class mobility. And, and, and if you look at like what the working class, how people define the white working class, the white working class is defined by its educational status first and foremost. Like the white working class is uneducated or people without four year college degrees or something. Right. It's a very loose problematic um, and I think somewhat incoherent conception of, of what the white working class is. But education is, a, is an important thing. And you'll see, you'll read all these studies about how, oh, like people with four-year degrees make X amount of dollars more on average, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all sort of statistics that people can point to for why college is important and why people should go to college. But of course, if you actually like dig deeper, the vast majority of people who succeed after college are people whose parents went to school and already had some sort of institutional or familial support. They went to good colleges because their parents told them to good go to good colleges. You know, like they knew how to navigate the scholarship market. You know, I didn't know how to do any of that because no one told me. You know, like my dad wasn't really around much. My mom had never gone to college. Um, by the time I got accepted to Sarah Lawrence College, my dad was dead. My mom just wanted me to be happy. She was like, go do whatever makes you happy, you know, because that's just the type of woman she is. She just wanted to me to follow, quote unquote, follow my dreams or whatever, you know. 
And so the only people I had for like to ask, you know, questions about were people in academia. And they all told me at that time, I remember they'd say, yeah, it's, I think it was like $60,000 for two years, you know? And I was like, man, that's a lot. Cause I didn't have a lot of undergraduate student debt. I had some, but I got, we got Pell grants and my mom helped a little bit. So I had some, but it wasn't a ton, maybe like 15 or 20,000 or something. Actually, that is kind of a lot, but I, I say it's not a lot because of how much I have now. It seems like, man, if only I had $15,000 in debt. So, so at that time, you know, it was like 60,000. I was like, man, that is a, that is a lot. That's an insane amount of money. And I remember someone said to me like, don't worry, you'll graduate because you're going to Sarah Lawrence College. It'll look really great. You're going to publish a book. You're going to get a good job. You're going to be making 80 grand a year and you're going to like, it's going to be fine. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that'll happen. Sure. And of course, like I graduated right when 2008 happened and like the number of jobs in the humanities like disappeared overnight, like by half in 2008. And then I got my PhD in 20, like right during COVID when everything else went to shit. So sort of historically, my academic trajectory has been uh, <laughs> sort of foiled by two very large world historical events, which is very funny. Um. But so, you know, at that time, I just thought, whatever. And, you know, you're 22 years old. Like, you don't have, I didn't have experience navigating finances. I didn't know, I didn't really understand what interest was. Like, I really didn't. I was just like, okay, yeah, there's going to be interest. I don't know what that means. Like, sure, I'll take it because I want to do the thing, you know. And so that's, that's, that's what I did, you know. And, but now, it's so interesting because, you know, I, I work part-time at Lowe's and I work with, you know, a lot of young, um, you know, 20 year olds who are not really in school or who are going to school part-time. And I was talking to one of them the other day and she's 20 and she's, you know, she's from Port Clinton. Very, you know, we had this really kind of heartfelt conversation. Like her mother died when she was 14, like, you know, of a drug overdose and she kind of moved around a lot. And now she's at Lowe's and, so we were talking and, and I just, and I was like, well, are you going to school? And she goes, no. And she was like, that's too fucking expensive. Like, I'm not going to take out, you're like, why would I do that? Like, I don't even know if it's going to do me any good. And I said to her and this like directly, I was like, good. Like, just like, you don't like, don't go yet. Like number one, if you want to go, that's fine. If you feel like you, if that's something you want to do, but like not going is totally fine, which is not something I would have said 20 years ago. You know, I would have thought not going to college, like, wow, how could you like, do you have no ambition or something? You know what I mean? Like not going to college is like what all my like, like all of my fuck up friends did, you know, they just like stayed home and like did drugs or got into trouble and they, they didn't go to college because they weren't aspirational. And it's so funny because now like, you know, I had a student last semester email me. He was in one of my classes. So I'm an adjunct instructor which we can talk about too, which is just brutal. And um, <clears throat> he emailed me, he goes, Hey, you know, you know, you, you said I could email you anytime if, you know, if I had any questions or whatever. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And he was like, well, I'm thinking of dropping out of school because I don't really know why I'm here or like, if this is any good for me, you know, like he's a vet, he's a military vet. He's like 25. He feels a sort of out of place. Cause he's, he's like everyone here. I don't feel like I like can talk to anybody. Um, and you know, I was really frank with him. I was like, listen, man, like I'm thinking about leaving too. Cause like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but the, the reality is like, you got to figure out why you want to go. You know what I mean? Like if you want to go because you feel like you need to get some sort of 
skills for jobs. Well, the reality is that most jobs just do on the job training anymore. Anyways, you'll find a good job. Like, well, I don't know if you'll find a good job actually, but you can, you can find a good job. Um, and you can, you can do, you can, you can make it without the college degree in a certain sense. Um, but you know, if you, if you, you know, to me, I think the, the real value of college, and this is something I, I think about a lot, and it's something that unfortunately has really disappeared, especially with COVID, is college is less about the, you know, the attainment of some credential. It should be or ought to be, I think, about, I mean, it's four years of your life where you get to socialize, you get to, you get to meet people. And you get to kind of explore and think about things that maybe you wouldn't normally think about because you're working your whole life, right? And and I think that unfortunately, college, you know, is so geared toward this sort of professional track that, you know, people can only think about it as like ROI, like return on investment. What's my investment? What am I getting back? Right. And of course, that's it's worth it to think about when you think about how fucking expensive college is. I mean, it's two hundred percent increase over the last twenty years or something, you know, in in so it's, it's, it's wild. It's, it's really wild. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of amazing to see how quickly, you know, just in the span of 20 years, we went from where I was, which was like, take out the loans, like get the degree. It was like a race to see who could have the most masters and the most PhDs. Cause you're going to like get the sweet job at some, some institution and you're going to work a three, three or a two, two, and you're going to like do all these things. And now it's just sort of like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, who, who needs it, right? It's not, it's not worth it. And it's just, it's a pretty, you know, higher education, I think, is undergoing a very serious crisis as a result, um, which could be, frankly, beneficial <laughs> in the long run. So, yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been, it's been a wild thing to witness in real time, for sure. I wanted to, um, <laughs> I, I was going to ask you about your your debt, but I feel like you covered that pretty well. Um, I wanted to talk about this story in the book um, where you have a childhood infatuation with a little girl that lives on the better part of the railroad tracks. And um, I was interested as you were growing as a young man. And you talked a little bit about going to Sarah Lawrence and dating someone who was from a very elite background and what that was like. Having had those experiences, how you came out with it as you feel like you can relate to a romantic partner. Like, for example, I've, I've dated aspirationally. I have dated above my class. And um, now in middle age, I've... I've have this sort of like intuition that I don't even want to try to relate to a partner who hasn't experienced poverty. Mm. Um, so I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about your journey. That's, <clears throat> that's really interesting that you mentioned that you don't want to date someone who hasn't experienced poverty because I, you know, I sometimes I've definitely thought about that a lot. Um, and you know, it is interesting because I think in the book you're talking about the, I'm, I'm trying to think she was like a cheerleader or something like when I was in middle school. Yeah. Yeah. She was. Yeah. So that was sort of the, um, 
it was always aspirational. I think for a while it was aspirational, you know, like it was like trying to date because if you want to be a part of the cool crowd or if you want to be a part of the in crowd, the easiest way to get there, it's like marrying into wealth. You know what I mean? You, you know, I was actually just watching a great episode of Seinfeld last night where George, um, it's the one it's like after his wife, his fiance dies and they, um, he has a picture of the beautiful woman and he goes to that elite club and he's just like, this is my fiance who died. And I'm like, wow, she was beautiful. And that's like his way into this like really amazing world. And I feel like, you know, that's sort of, there's something, there's a, I mean, it's such a cruel episode. Cause it's also the one where Jerry's dating the woman with man hands. Um, but it's such a cruel episode, but there's, there's a real truth to it because you know, I, I found myself always gravitating toward the cultured kind of intellectual, you know, um, I guess, privileged women, you know, like that was sort of, you know, especially in college and graduate school, that was like where I found myself trying to find success. And of course it, it you know, to, to varying degrees, it worked and didn't work, you know, but for me, I think the larger experience or what I learned from that ultimately was that it's, it is really difficult to date someone who has never experienced poverty, <laughs> like you're kind of saying. Um, and it's very difficult because just the, w- the way in which it sort of informs your worldview from things like, you know, how you how you approach the service industry and how you approach um, day-to-day problems Um and just like what you value and what you what you think about, um, like what your sort of concerns are um, from both a micro and sort of a macro perspective are very different if you've never really had to kind of really struggle, I guess. And this isn't to valorize like struggling. I'm not saying it's like a good thing to like be poor or like makes you a better person or something. That's not necessarily what I mean, but it's just sort of that it's very difficult to relate. You know, I find myself... Um, sometimes in my darker moments being like, man, like that is such a, a, a privileged way of thinking. Like that's clearly something that you might think if like, you've never really had to like deal with day to day shit. You know what I mean? You could just sit back and get upset about some abstract thing that you've invented that you saw online that is like, uh, you know, um, you've decided is, is, is some great, you know, moral injustice. And it's like, man, like go out into the world and like, uh, if if you're if your every day is just like working ten hour shifts and like doing the grind and like worrying about like my God like I have so much fucking so much debt and I have no money like those kinds of concerns are they just disappear you know what I mean like those are not things that you're gonna think about on a regular basis and if you are and when people bring them up you're gonna be like what you know like I sometimes try to imagine like explaining some of like online discourse to people like at Lowe's and like seeing what their reaction would be. Cause I, I, I don't know cause I've never tried it, but I would guess that like 90% of them are going to be like, what? what are you talking about? What? Like, what? I don't, I don't, I don't get it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, it, it's interesting cause um, you know, my, my wife it comes from a different, somewhat different background, you know, her, she like me, grew up, I think, when she was very young, um, was her parents struggled a little bit, but both of her parents made it in ways that my parents did not make it. Her parents are military. Both of her parents are in the military and they got good government jobs, you know, 
um, her mom got a master's degree in like engine and computer engineering and became like a coder at, at the perfect time that you should have done that. And like, they made it, you know, and like they, they have some, some wealth that they were able to pass on eventually. Right. Um, but she's also, she wasn't raised with it, you know, like she didn't even know. I mean, her parents never told them how much like wealth they had because they didn't want them to know. Um, and so there, there, there is a sort of difference there. Um, and you know, it comes out in other ways, like her military background, like my parents are both very firmly anti-authoritarian. They were like, we were raised by like, there's one thing that you don't like. It's like someone trying to tell you what to do or how to think or how to feel. Right. And whereas her growing up was, no, you got to kind of, uh, you, you got to follow orders. You got to like, you know, do what you're told and do it well. You know what I mean? Like listen to your superior officer basically. And it's, it's really interesting because now like at work sometimes, like a lot of our disagreements will be about like, she'll say, I feel like my coworkers, you know, like my boss or whatever, she's a librarian, you know, so she's not like in the high stakes world of like finance or something, but she's a librarian. And you know, she'll say like, I feel I just need to do a good job. And sometimes I'm like, who cares? And like, that's not a fair thing to say <clears throat> because she cares about her job and she wants to do well. And that's really good. But my knee jerk reaction in almost any situation is like, man, eh, who fucking cares? Like, whatever, it's fine. Like, I don't need to do it's whatever. Like, if they don't like you, they don't like you. And she's like, no, no, no. Like they need, I have to do a good job, you know? And to her credit, she's much more successful than I am. And I'm I'm like an adjunct and I'm working at Lowe's and she has like a, a nice job as a librarian. So I don't know who I guess who has the last the last laugh here. I don't know, but yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, you you got muted again. Oh, sorry. Um, I was gonna say one of the 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 most moving chapters, Adam, was um I think entitled Deaths of Despair. Um, and want to want to turn and pivot to that. You you already mentioned um the kind of sequence of events. You leave Brooklyn, and you go back home, and here you are, and you have multiple friends, including your father, dealing with serious um, personal crises. But obviously, um, they're not merely personal crises, right? And um, they're tied into kind of these big social relations and social structures, and you know, since um, someone like Bernie Sanders brought the notion of the deaths of despair phenomenon out into public consciousness, people have started to talk about it. But frankly, if you look at, say, the nonprofit world, there, in my estimation, are not many efforts to organize and raise a, any kind of care or concern about this issue. It's invisible. Mm -hmm. largely. And so I'm shifting here to something that's quite difficult topic, Adam, and I apologies for that. But um, I feel that it's, it has to be discussed. And um, I felt you did a remarkable job by weaving your own personal firsthand experience with this. Because a lot of folks on the left will talk about this as if it exists somewhere out there. Right. And that really shows the class composition of the left when people say that. Mm -hmm. The, the I mean, you know, speaking for, you know, as members of class unity, it's like, actually, maybe we should be talking about these things as already infused in our own backyard, already happening now and in recent times. 
they're not it's not over right these 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 are and we can sure julie and myself can pull a number of stories out right so um my, my question is can you talk about that um give us a little bit of a background on that i know that you also study a little bit um some of this stuff from a kind of more kind of academic point of view so tell us what this phenomenon is um maybe from a macro and then bring it bring it down to the micro into your into how you talk about it in the book please so you mean like the death of despair yeah that whole framework if you don't mind just kind of maybe just talk about it unpack it a little bit if that's okay. yeah yeah so death of despair i mean you know this is a uh a kind of a sociological term that emerges, you know, with the opioid crisis in particular. And it's a way of trying to sort of a catch all phrase for, you know, men and women who are dying largely as a result um, of kind of circumstantial, you know, material deprivation as it were, you know, like, one way is to say they they died because they were poor and broken and they were trying to find ways to feel less broken and to feel less pain, right? Um, but like this sort of death of despair becomes this sort of catch-all phrase for, for, for navigating that. And, you know, it became a really fashionable topic for a minute there. I feel like it's less fashionable now, but like you know, 2020, 2019, 2010, I mean, that was like, there were so many of these um, sort of profiles of towns like in Ohio, Ohio was like a, the center of the opioid crisis, Southern Ohio, especially. Um, and it was very, it was very surreal to me to read, to read about because, you know, like, like I was saying, my best friend, my, he was my college roommate, we lived together for three years, and he was probably the closest friend I've one of the closest friends I've ever had, you know, he struggled. He went from kind of doing downers and, and, uh, and he got into Oxy and he got into heroin and then he cleaned up, you know, like a lot of people do. He, he managed to finally get sober and then, you know, he relapsed and he ended up taking heroin that was laced with fentanyl and he died. And so it was, it was very surreal to read all of that and to think about, to think about him and to think about like his, his struggle to get clean, like the sort of the pain that I, I saw him in all of the time, because there was a there was a, a really weird sense in which the way that these deaths are talked about is it it's explicitly it's always like sort of moral. I mean, James Agee talks about this in Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. I don't know if you guys have read the book. It's about sharecroppers. You know, he was hired at the time um, as part of the public works project. Him and Walker Evans, they go to the South, they photograph and and spend time with these sharecroppers. And at the beginning of the book, he writes this long preface, which is basically about how ridiculous it is that he's being hired to go to write about these impoverished and, as he describes them, very damaged individuals so that a bunch of middle-class readers can read about it and feel moved by it. You know what I mean? And to be, feel moved by the, the plight of their thing. It was a, it was a, it was a real, it was a serious fuck you to the, his entire audience as it were. Um, and at one point he says, if I could do, if I could just, if I could write nothing, I would, but of course I have to write um, because how else can I give you this thing? And so there is that sort of tension between telling stories and storytelling and the kind of ways in which storytelling is often 
almost instantaneously sort of uh, captured by some of these uh, perspectives that are, I think, sort of troubling in a certain sense because it, you know, they're not always nuanced and they, they often present people as either as just victims or as, as criminals or as villains, you know what I mean? So I really struggled with that. And that was part of the reason that I never knew if I wanted to write a book about any of these deaths was because it was like, I don't know, do I want to just like tell people how, how tragic that like their lives were? Like, I don't know if I feel comfortable doing that necessarily. Um, but at the same time, it, it felt like for me, what was really instructive was thinking about, you know, my friend Gabe, who was a lawyer, you know, he had, was in a certain sense, he embodied a certain ideal of success. He overcame his, his physical disability and, you know, he got double lung transplant and he was a lawyer and he was successful and he was optimistic and he was positive and everybody loved him. And when he died, it was like the saddest thing in the world. Right. And he committed suicide because he was depressed. Um, he had a darker side to him and that was part of it. Um, and then Kevin, you know, Kevin was just like, he didn't go to college. I mean, he went to college for like a semester and dropped out. He was a drug addict. He made a lot of bad decisions. You know, toward the end of his life, he was, he was making very poor um, decisions to get money. You know what I mean? Um, but he was also like a really good worker. And at one point he, he worked for FedEx and he was like a voted employee of the month. You know what I mean? Like in the midst of all of this. And I just thought about like how we are taught in a certain sense to view these two men. Like one of them is like a sad death and the other one is a death where it's like, well, what do you expect? You know what I mean? And, and I, and, and that really upset me. You know, it really, it just thought that it's, it presents such a, a crass way of thinking about like the value. It was like someone deserves to die. Like yeah. well, he didn't deserve to die. Right. But then yeah. he got what he had coming to him. Yeah. And, and you see this, especially with like, you know, the deplorables comment, I mean, and Trump supporters. And it's like, you know, because it's, it, it sort of intuitively, like, you know, if you think about it from a, you know, 30,000 foot perspective, or if, if you take your own feelings out of it for, for a moment, it sort of makes sense to, to not feel entirely bad if someone dies and they're like, you think of the, if you think they're a bad person, right? Like if you think, oh, well, they, he was kind of like a racist piece of shit anyways, like it's fine. But it's like not much better to like be like to just to pity someone, you know what I mean? Like, and that's like the whole white working class narrative was like, which presented this dichotomy is like, well, do we feel bad for them or do we kind of like say like, okay, good, they got what was coming? And it's like neither of these things do anything to help anybody. You know, we're not actually changing their material conditions because, you know, my politics are politics that like, yeah, even the kind of racist piece of shit deserves healthcare and human dignity. Like, I'm sorry, but he does. You know, he he should get those things. Um, because, you know, my politics are, are universal and they're not sort of qualified based on one's individual beliefs, you know what I mean? Um, and a lot of these narratives, they really kind of, they don't allow for, for that kind of thinking at times, you know, um, at least not as they are presented, I think, in mainstream media, especially. I don't know, did that answer your question? I feel like I got, I just kind of rambled a little bit. No, it's, it's good. I mean, it's, it's tricky in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, the kind of liberal narrative is on, you know, this deplorable thing. And of course, everyone recognizes and I agree that San, the Sanders campaign made visible 
mm-hmm. slogan of deaths of despair. But at the same time, I would also follow that up by saying that there's no organizational or practical organization of the populations that are acutely affected by these phenomena. Mm. So, so therefore, they actually don't have mainstream representation. They're talked about in the abstract. Right. They're not organized. They're not permitted to see their condition as bound up with class oppression. Right. How do you make that pivot? Right. I feel that that's the heart of your book, which is to get out of the culturalist framework that otherize these people as losers, deplorables, or as they had it coming into one which would militate their social existence in such a way that both they and others begin to view these conditions from a more um, embedded material standpoint in which these these phenomenon are I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling and I'm predicting that these, the condition of the working class, precisely because this meritocratic dream that we sort of had access to as old millennials, mm-hmm. of like, yeah, I'm going to do the college. It's a major risk, but I'm going to do it, right? That, when that's now taken away, we'll, and then combined with the fact that the, this population is not activated politically, right? Like I always say, like it was like under 10% of the people on Jan 6 were from the working class. Like the work, they're not politicized. So yeah. maybe my question is, how might we politicize these mm. dynamics? Because um, I don't really see them as, as they may be talked about, but they're not politicized. People are not made radical by these things. It's still individualized. How do we sort of, how do we sort of collectivize this phenomenon? Maybe it's one way to ask. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, it's something I think about a lot like it. It's something I think I've thought about at Lowe's, right? So Lowe's is a really weird institution. It's like GE in the eighties where it's like, um, it's basically a credit card company now with like a home improvement store is like a front, right? It's doing all this kind of financial stuff every day. Like the managers on the, you know, beeping through the walkie talkie, like how many credit card apps did we get today? You know what I mean? And they present it always as like, well, if you need the money now for a big important project, then you're going to want the credit card, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well, okay, maybe that line works for some people. And it's like true on some surface level. Like, yeah, like, of course, if my fucking hot, hot water heater breaks, like, yeah, like I, I don't have the money, like you can provide me that at some, you know, but it's not obviously what's really going on. And I think about it because I was, you know, as, as like somebody who thinks a lot about class consciousness and about how to kind of mobilize working people and about like what to do, because sometimes I feel like at a loss or I feel, you know, I went through like a big period in 2020 during COVID when, when Bernie kind of got first kind of screwed by the democratic establishment and then kind of was like, all right, I'm out because he's, Cause he's Bernie. He's like the sweetest man in the world and he didn't want to do anything that would be bad. Right. I mean, that's like his whole, like he doesn't have the kind of uh, finishing move instinct, political instinct, I don't think. And to, you know, I love the guy, but come on. Um, and so, you know, the whole 2020 Biden Trump thing, and I got into like a really dark place and it was very bitter and I was very nihilistic. And I think that like, you know, one of the biggest problems that we have to kind of deal with is a kind of political cynicism or political nihilism, because I think that it's, it's very easy to kind of just be like a doomer, 
And it's kind of funny to be like a doomer and to like make jokes about how everything sucks and nothing's going to get better and the world's going to explode or whatever. And it feels kind of good in some immediate level to make those jokes. And that's why I did it. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. Fuck it. Who cares? You know. But at the end of the day, I think that, you know, the left needs to recapture some some level of sincerity, maybe. Um, and some level of, of kind of directness, you know, that isn't sort of filtered through all these kinds of layers of, of, of irony and discourse and all these kinds of things. And because unfortunately I think a lot of the most visible aspects or the visible parts of what we call a left are online and they are in academia and they are kind of being filtered through a lot of those lenses. And it's just like totally not how you reach people. I, I don't think, cause I don't think a lot of people, really understand it you know like i try to think about things all the time like you know my mom is 65 she is unemployed well i, I, I take that back she's working part-time at the at the middle school as a lunch lady she's collecting medicaid she has no retirement because she went through a very bad relationship it was very abusive and he basically coerced her or convinced her to kind of just like get rid of everything you know and so she's got nothing. She's got no savings. All she has is a house, you know, and it's partly paid off. So she has some equity, but she has no, she's got nothing, you know. And I try to think about things. She's a Christian. She's like a very devout Christian, but she's like kind of a liberal Christian. She's like pro-choice and she like she's sort of a, she hates Trump and she was a big Bernie supporter. So she's a really interesting kind of, you know, um, po politically speaking, she's kind of a, a not, she doesn't fit neatly into like a box. And I think that a lot of the working class is like that, right? The working class is like, you know, you, you look at the statistics, it's like what 80 million people work for a wage. Um, and that's a lot of people. And that's depending on how you want to define the working class, right? I mean, if you want to just go buy income or something, it's even more than 80 million. Never mind all the people who are like unemployed or marginally employed or who don't even count in those kinds of statistics. So it's this massive population. Um, and you're never going to find the the perfect sort of political subject to try to like that ticks all the boxes in terms of like, what are your thoughts on this topic? What are your thoughts on X, Y, Z? And oh, you unfortunately, you have this belief about why. So I'm not sure we can really relate to one another at the end of the day, you know, and I think that it's it makes organizing really tough. And, but so for me, you know, I've been falling back on like, like when I'm at Lowe's and I'll, I'll be talking with somebody and I, and I, I kind of just, I'll be thinking about it. And I think which, if I were to try to unionize, which would be a disaster because Lowe's is vehemently anti-union, um, very pro-diversity, but very anti-union. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, they they have squashed previous efforts to do it, you know. And um, I I think, like, which 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 of these people would be most on board with, like, if I were to, like, start doing this, you know what I mean? And it's, that's, it's a really instructive question because I think that, like, you know, I think, like, who here hates their job and wants to make it better, right? And that's, like, a different question than, like, how do we have a different job? Because the question is like, oh, you don't like your job, get a better job. It's like, why don't I just make this job better? Because there are two different solutions. If you quit this job to get a better job, well, nothing really changes because then you're just entering the sort of like 
reserve army of labor and you're competing, everyone else is, becomes your competition, right? Other workers become who you have to fight against to get that better job. But if you just say, I want to make this job better, well, then you have to like work with other people and your workers are not your enemies anymore. There are people who, you, who you're suddenly trying to get on board and, you know, your enemy is like someone, you know, most likely you're, you know, your bosses <laughs> and not that just bosses, but like, you know, it's going to be, um, the, the fine people who have a, a larger financial stake, um, in, in keeping things as they are. Right. Um, the, the sort of absentee owners and the board of trustees and the, all of those managers, financial managers that kind of control those. Um, so it, it you know, it's, it's a great question that you're presenting and, and it's, it's, it's a really difficult question that I, don't have like an easy answer for, but it is something I think about a lot because there are days when I'll be talking with somebody and they'll say something that's like, oh, like they don't quite, I don't know if they like, like think of themselves as being a certain way politically or if they have a certain uh, explicit kind of thought about their place in this hierarchy. But you know, like I remember one day I was, I was working with this girl She's uh, also an outside lawn and garden. She's become like a really good friend of mine. I love her to death. She's very funny. She's 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 just like kind of an amazing person to be around. And she says things all the time that I'm like, wow, like you would be so easy to you like you, you, if I were to like to do this like unionize, unionization effort like the first person I thought was like, Oh, she would definitely be on board. You know what I mean? Because she, she says little things all the time that that might seem like little throwaway remarks, but I think that they speak to a certain understanding of like how she understands the situation. So like, for instance, at Lowe's, you're not allowed to chase someone down. If they're, if you see them shoplifting, you have to let them leave. It's like kind of a rule because they don't want any liability. So if anybody wants to shoplift from Lowe's, that's a little, that's a secret. I mean, they'll find you eventually, I'm, I'm sure, using whatever sort of dystopian technology they have. But at the bare level, at the bare minimum, you'll make it out that day, probably. But so one day we were talking. And so like a lot of working class sort of places with working class people, there are some people who are sort of like, totally, they identify with Lowe's, right? They don't identify with like workers, they identify with Lowe's. And so one of our coworkers was like, man, I think it's, it's such bullshit that I can't chase them down. I, I like wish I could just go down there and stop him, you know? And she looked at him and she was like, she was like, well, like why? She's like, you're not going to get a raise. Like they're not going to pay. You're not going to, they're not going to pay you anything more for doing that. Like who cares? Like, why do you care? Like little throwaway remarks like that to me just speak to, I think a sort of unreflective kind of class consciousness, you know, or like one day there's this guy who works. So Lowe's, Lowe's hires a lot of um, people who I guess we would describe as being like um, uh, neurodivergent uh, is the sort of politically correct term or not even politically correct term, just the correct term. So um, there's one guy who works there. He's He collects the carts um, and he's a really interesting guy. I've never really talked much with him, um, but, you know, people always you know, make passing remarks about him. And one day he was walking by and, and he, you know, we're outside, you know, it's like 95 degrees. It's like insanely hot. He's like drenched in sweat. He's pushing these carts and 
we're standing there and he walks by us and she, she just like under her breath, she was just like, man, she was like, somebody needs to give that guy a raise. You know what I mean? Like, and so like, it's a little, they're like these little remarks that I, I kind of get sometimes that to me really, cause you know, she's not looking at him and thinking like, man, like look at how fucked up he is or look how weird he is. Or like, why doesn't he have teeth or like, or whatever, you know what I mean? Like wh whatever, like the remark you might make, it's like, man, that guy fucking deserves more money for what he does, you know? So it's just, I think that that to me is, has been really, I don't know. It's been very instructive and very helpful in the way I think about like how to reach people, I guess, when I'm talking about these kinds of things. And like, yeah. if I'm going to try to organize, like, who am I really, who's my audience, you know, like from the academic right. perspective, I teach that all the time. Like who are you writing to or who are you talking to? Like, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your, your book is, I mean, we, we haven't talked about um, your father's narrative, um, which by the way, is just, you know, thank you for being so sort of courageous to to talk about that i can only imagine how difficult that is um and I, I would invite you to say something about that but um adolf reed um great socialist uh, american socialist uh, professor says that co contemporary liberalism runs off the maxim that like if it suffers it must be good right like oh yeah obsessed with suffering and and you know i kind of i think that's true right but i also and i wonder if you agree adam feel that liberals the kind of elite liberal discourse also um selects which suffering is valid right absolutely and so i kind of disagree with adolf reed about that right and i think that your book points out that the myth of the white working class needs to be exposed this is you know this is, if, if it if it isn't exposed then socialist politics you know collective egalitarian large-scale politics that can introduce social policies in time you know um that would that would allow for some of these conditions to change they won't happen if we don't if we don't face this issue we have to face this issue and part of facing that issue is to deal with the suffering that goes muted and there's many reasons why that suffering goes muted it's christianity christianity i think mutes it um the liberal meritocratic narrative mutes it um I guess my question is, how can we unmute that in a way that doesn't um, reify this hyper-liberal framework onto it, right? If that makes sense. Um, because I feel that, like, there's a lot of repression out there in the so-called white working class, because even members of that class still can't kind of talk about these things. And in some cases, it's really extreme. It's really extreme to have people your age die. It's really extreme to see people's dreams shattered. Like this stuff's hard, man. So like, I don't know, like, I think your book's a really good effort in kind of shifting the narrative somehow. And maybe more books need to be written in this kind of in this way. That's one way to do it. So maybe the answer is kind of culture, <laughs> even though you're very opposed yeah. to culture works right now. So I, I always ask you these big questions, Adam. I'm sorry. Um, but I'm just asking you to kind of riff with, with us, if that's all right. I, this. I'm interesting. So I, you know, you mentioned Christianity. Are you, is that like a kind of, I mean, is this sort of a stereotypically Marxist? Oh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, kind of I'm actually a Christian. I just mean the prosperity gospel. I just mean like specific experiences of some parts of Christianity. Um, 
do have in their kind of classical Protestant work ethic, mm -hmm. you know, the whole Max Weber predestination sure. idea, <laughs> you know, for a long time in American life, that justifies this um, bootstrap ideology or, or justifies the sense in which, yeah, um, uh, there's nothing to be radicalized about being from the wrong, the other side of the tracks. There's nothing to be radicalized about being poor. It's just the way it naturalizes. Mm -hmm. so Christianity has a tendency to naturalize oppression, to naturalize exploitation as par for the course. Okay. Now, now you can push back and say, well, yeah, there's also socialist Christianity. I think you're right. I'm not opposed to Christianity in some vulgar way. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of deleterious things about it too. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was a little curious when you were talking about this guy that really did a number on your mom. Hmm. Now, <laughs> was he into prosperity gospel? Because I kind of had a feeling he was. Yeah, so I don't really. So, OK, growing up, my mom was not super Christian. She was sort of a lapsed Catholic, right? And we went to church like once a year, twice a year, like on Easter and Christmas Eve or whatever, like kind of your standard Catholic thing that you do. Jesus dies, Jesus comes back or whatever. Um, and, you know, my father was not very religious. You know, he was, he had all, he was like really an Emerson and Thoreau. So like for him, like, you know, God was nature or whatever. I don't know. We never really talked a lot about it. Um but he would just make passing remarks um, and, and based on things that he's, I've read, you know, I mean, I've read a lot of Emerson and Throw now, but um, kind of trying to piece together who my father was. I just think like, okay, I, I kind of get that's where he was coming from. But my mom, you know, my mom has very traumatic, very traumatic life. Um, very tragic in a lot of ways. I mean, just very, very difficult. And she's overcome a lot. And I think that in the nineties, you know, after my parents split up, I think she went through like a period of personal sort of questioning and, and it was a sort of a spiritual crisis and she became a born again Christian, like the kind that, you know, is, is easy to make fun of. Um, like very conservative, very, you know, it's weird because she grew up, you know, I think instinctually with, a kind of working class, I don't know if it's sort of a contradiction terms, but not quite, but like working class libertarianism is how I would describe her very much sort of like, I don't like the government. I don't, but she also really does not, you know, like rich people and, and, or like, you know, this kind of, you know, that kind of arrogance. And she ends up kind of falling in and she meets this guy at church. That's where she met him. Right. It was at a Bible study group. And he was like, kind of, um, pretty wealthy actually. And, but he was very controlling and he was very, um, very abusive emotionally, I think occasionally physically. Um, and he really kind of, um, kind of cast a spell on her, I think by breaking her down and just kind of making her feel really worthless. And, and it was, it was really, it was really hard to see. And it was really hard to watch her try to get out of it for so long. Cause it did, it took her a long time to get out of it. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, I think that, why were we talking about this again? Now I'm trying to, I lost my train of thought. Oh yeah. I was, I was making the claim, which you were kind of giving pushback, which is valid that Christianity 
um, fosters a kind of um, move away from the politicization of, mm. of things like class because it kind of sure. naturalizes, you know, explo exploitative relations or something. Yeah. All right. right. Yeah. Like I have this sister-in-law who's a total piece of shit. <laughs> and um she, <laughs> she drives a mercedes and she's like well it's because of the grace of god that i have these things uh, and yeah, you know yeah. god can take it all away mm -hmm. with you know the implication that god wants her to have a mercedes sure 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 yeah yeah, my mom is. She's never been like that. Thankfully, I mean, she got into the culture. She was big in the culture wars. You know, Bush era abortion, gay marriage, that kind of stuff. And you know, like that was that was really where she started fighting her battles. And I think that was largely his influence because deep down, and now, like my mother is very libertarian about those things. You know, like she she's very supportive of like you know gay marriage and and um transgender rights and like she's she's very supportive of all these kinds of things and she's also very like i think she has a a pretty good intuitive sort of class consciousness and 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 i think that it's interesting because for her i think that contrary to what you were saying i think christianity comes for her like in some sense a justification for kind of more radical public works right um and i guess this is like socialist christianity or so you know that kind of um strain of left kind of radical christian you know and, and i mean this is like a debate that's happened for a long time like you know you know do, oh, but jesus overturned the money table you know i mean that's like a, the the kind of thing that we'll point to to say no jesus was a radical and easier to pass through the eye of needle or, you know whatever and I, and I think that my mom, you know, like she's definitely someone who I think that that for her is, is, is kind of the case. Um, because for her, contrary to these sort of liberal narratives of like who, who deserves something and who doesn't, who gets to suffer, who gets to suffer in a way that deserves our sympathy for her, like it is a kind of universal thing where like, you know, we people are suffering and therefore we ought to do something about it regardless of whether or not like like for her she, you know her response is always like look it's not really for me to like decide whether or not your views are correct or not or your beliefs are correct or not like my job is to sort of like kind of respond and react in a way that is um doing something Christ-like in the world, right? Which is like helping people or being selfless or, you know, taking care of someone or like showing someone grace, right? I mean, I think about this a lot, like, you know, with, I, I don't talk a lot about cancel culture or online kind of stuff because I don't find it to be an especially productive conversation to always have. But I do think that, you know, another thing that we really have to, or at least that I strive to, to do especially after years of a lot of cynicism and nihilism is like really trying to um, extend people that kind of like mercy and grace, like even when they don't deserve it, like to show it to them anyways, like, because at the end of the day, like, I mean, it's so easy to point to something that someone says or does as though that is kind of the, the sum of who they are as like an individual. But of course people are, 
incredibly complicated and people are surprising. And, and that's certainly something I, I, that drew me to literature, I think, you know, because I think literature is like somewhere a place where you can't explore a lot of those contradictions. But unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of ways in which now like people say something and it's just like, I don't know how many times I hear it. It's just like, oh, they did X, Y, Z, or they, they like this guy. Fuck. They're a fucking piece of shit. He sucks. You know, I mean, whatever. And it's just like, man, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't I can't be that way. I mean, I guess some people can be, but to me, if that's like, if, if that's the kind of um, approach that we're going to have to understanding um, people as like complicated um, sort of, uh, products of their material and cultural circumstances, like we're never going to get anywhere. Like you're just going to spend the rest of your life talking about how shitty people are. And it's like, if that's what you want to do, I guess go for it. But good luck ever trying to change anyone's mind about anything. Um, Adam, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, this has been really delightful to just talk to you. I love just your answers have been really um, down to earth and really really interesting and thoughtful and personal um there was this phrase from the new left which is uh the personal is political and i always felt like reading your book like we need to kind of reverse that so mm. we need to rethink that somehow i don't know how but i feel like your book is a beginning point to push the left and um not just the left but really i mean that's the other thing is that we're looking at a whole generation of people that can't even recognize the left today. It's like they're, they're yeah. kind of excluded from it because they don't, because they didn't go to college. And so they don't, maybe they don't know the right things to say. Mm -hmm. They don't have the right opinions, you know? So those things, those things do concern me. And, and your points about, you know, you know, including people with, with, a, um, with a not, not, not tolerant position, but, but a kind of a, more, a broader more accept it, accepting and affirmative position is really important and um so thank you for that and thanks for your time today um thank you thank you for being so generous yeah no, th thank you guys for asking me you know i it's weird you know i um i as kind of scared to talk about my book in some ways because it's so personal and i just felt like it's like pacing around this morning like oh man like I'm going to have to like talk about my life. You're among comrades really... here. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. And, and, and obviously you guys made me feel it was great. It was a, it was a wonderful conversation, but you know, I've become sort of weirdly, I think in the last couple of years, I've become intensely uh, private as an individual. I've kind of retreated away. I left all of, I basically just abandoned all online discourse. Like I have Instagram and that's like it. I just post pictures of my wife and my dog and stuff. And um, I just like work and I write and I, I've kind of found a lot of solace in like not being a part of all of that. So then to like come back, I mean, I haven't been on a, I haven't done a podcast and I don't even know how long. So it's been kind of cool to be back on and to, to talk to people again. Cause it's, it's been, I feel like it's been a long time since I've really done that. So I appreciate it. And I, I really appreciate all the kind words about the book because man, writing something like that is um, it's pretty terrifying. And then you're like, people are going to read it. And then like, you know, people review it. And even though 
on as as someone as an academic and as a critic, I understand like how criticism works because it's yours and because it's not just yours, but because it's like about your life. You think, man, did I live my life the wrong way? Like if I had lived a different life, would they like the book better or something? You know. So it's it's been it's been a weird experience for sure. Awesome. You want to tell us about any projects you're working on as a final final point? Um. Yeah. I mean, I'm just. I'm going to be publishing some more essays, hopefully. Um, I've been kind of in the works. Um, I want to, I'm publishing one or maybe two about um, higher education. I think I'm going to try to to, to kind of form them into a, a full length book project, which is kind of like a critique um, of, of um, our higher education system and just the ways in which it'll be kind of a combined historical, like, you know, kind of a, like how did we get here and also sort of kind of critiquing a lot of the standard narratives about um, higher education. Um, so that would be one thing. And then I'm also working on a novel about my experience working at Lowe's. Um, so like I, I just, I, you know, my wife one day said to me like, cause I was like, man, I'm, I'm like an academic, I'm an adjunct instructor and I'm like slinging mulch on the side. And she was like, you know, that's a really good idea for a book. You should just like write about it. Uh, okay. And I was like, yeah, maybe I will. So I've been kind of doing that, um, kind of collecting experiences there that I will hopefully turn into some something worth reading. Who knows? Um, I don't know when that'll ever be out, but, you know, it's something I'm working on. So, well, you know, maybe maybe you could um, think about offering in the future something to class unity members, especially for folks that maybe don't have access to like um college and you know writing you, you have these skills you know hmm. perhaps perhaps that might be something we could talk about helping people to write about their personal experience i mean i know people usually go to college for many many years yeah. and get you know a lot of debt to do that but yeah but I mean, maybe, I... maybe you know start offering these things um for free would be a radical gesture or something yeah actually that would actually be really cool and also i mean i think that i mean on the one hand, I think there is the um, sort of creative expressionist kind of like writing about your personal experience. But I, I also think it would be useful or might be useful doing, you know, workshops for like, you know, uh, cover letters and resumes and things like this. Um, it's something I, you know, I teach a lot in in my undergraduate writing classes. Um, just practical, like, you know, the sort of practical like uses of language and how to, you know, how to communicate in that ways, which you know, we, you, you really kind of need, um, so, or, you know, depending on what you want to do with your life. Um, yeah. All right. This has been great, everybody. Thanks for listening to this conversation. And, um, we've got a lot more, a lot more conversations like this on the way. So have a great day, everybody. 